Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Jenna Drosos, Chief Executive Officer of Signet Jewelers. everyone. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from my Los Angeles office, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City, my apartment. Your apartment, as, as always. I actually just saw you, which was a real treat. We were at the WJA Awards for Excellence in New York earlier this week, and it was a super intimate you know, affair, a little smaller than past years, but really lovely, I thought. It was nice to see everyone in person and obviously nice to celebrate the two women who were honored. It was Karen Garaki from Borsheims and Fern Malice, creator of New York Fashion Week, both really well-deserved. And it was just so nice to see everyone in person. I hope that was your impression, too. Yes. A little weird without the masks, but, you know, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. So it's been nice to connect, but of course, we're still used to doing these. I mean, we normally record these podcasts in our studio, obviously, or normally pre-pandemic, but I think we've all gotten used to using this platform. We use a great platform called Zencaster, and it does allow us to have guests like today's guest, who we normally probably couldn't pin down for a time in New York City. So... The woman we have on today, I just watched Mad Money's Jim Cramer call her the turnaround artist. Had lots of great things to say where she was interviewed on his program very recently. If you don't already know who I'm talking about, you will certainly know her name. Jenna Drosos, Chief Executive Officer of Signet Jewelers. Got a real big wig today and we're really thrilled to have you. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you so much, Victoria and Rob. It's great to be with you. Yeah. So you're calling in from someplace I've never heard of. You're going to have to tell us a little bit about it. Lake Oconee, Georgia. That's right. It's about an hour and a half outside of Atlanta, which is where I grew up, and about an hour away from Athens, Georgia, which is where I went to university. And I'm a big fan of golf and water sports as a stress reliever. And so whenever I can get down here for a weekend, I try to do that. And that's, I think, one of the silver linings of COVID is that we've been able to do our jobs pretty effectively from a variety of locations. So I've been working uh, of Lake Oconee today. And so how did you wind your way? I know you held numerous roles prior to getting to Signet and you joined the board in 2012, but you've been CEO since, what is it, almost about a little over four years, correct? 2017? That's right. I came in in August. You know, it's, um, it's really interesting. When I think about my career, I think the common thread is, number one, I've always wanted to work in industries where I feel like the products or services make a difference in people's lives. And secondly, I've really particularly enjoyed transformation opportunities, opportunities to work with a very talented team like I have at Signet and transform our company and hopefully have a positive impact also on the industry. That's really what drew me to Procter & Gamble. I worked there in the beauty business. It was very small when I started. I was part of a team that built the number one beauty company in the world in the middle of a soap and diaper company. And we did that through acquisitions, through global expansion of our product lines. We focused on the consumer to really 
understand his and her needs. And then we had expert product development to bring breakthrough products to life. One of my favorite experiences was the Olay brand. When I started working on it, it was about $180 million in sales. And when I left P&G, it was two and a half billion. You know, number one brand in not only North America, but also China, fast growing in India. You know, I remember sitting on, honestly, I had traveled about three hours outside of the fifth largest city in India on dirt roads for the last hour and a half of that trip and sitting on the floor of a woman's home and talking to her about her beauty rituals. And when I understood the role that our skincare and hair care products were making in her life and the pleasure that it was bringing her and the aspect of braiding her hair and oiling her hair with her daughter and her sister every week, I could see that beauty products were making a difference. They were giving her confidence and, you know, were a very important part of her life. And so being able to transform our cost structure and our packaging to make those benefits accessible in a market like that was very fulfilling. Was there anything you think you did, especially from a marketing standpoint that you think helped that particular brand? Absolutely. It was originally called Oil of Olay. Yeah, I remember that. I remember yeah. that too. Old school. <laughs> and it was one product. It was the pink beauty fluid when I started working on it. So the first thing was to understand consumers' impression of that brand. And they referred to it in focus groups as Oil of Old Lady, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, which was a bit disaffectionate, but they, but they also believed in it. I mean, they believed that it had, you know, a power reputation and that it was a good moisturizer. It just wasn't modern. It didn't have a, a modern marketing approach, a modern name. No one really wants to put oil on their skin. And that, of course, wasn't the main ingredient of the product. It was just heritage. And so we transformed the name of the brand, the appearance of the brand, our product development cycle. We benchmarked the very best products available. So we went to department stores and dermatologist brands and dissected the formulas that those brands used. And with our scale and cost structure, we could make better products at a lower cost and make those available. So it was a mid-market product offering, not too dissimilar from Signet, really, from our offerings of Kay and Zales and Jared and Piercing Pagoda. We brought accessible luxury to those customers. We brought them the very best products available, but at a price and with packaging that was affordable to them. And so that democratization of those categories was something that really meant a lot to me. Building accessibility allowed us to make a difference in more people's lives. What years were you, I'm just curious, I'm imagining you in, in still this image of you sitting in this woman's home in India. Could you have imagined that you'd be back at some point? And I imagine you have been back for jewelry as opposed to beauty. Well, right. I mean, we have an office in India and so many of our treasured vendors that we work with so closely are located there. It's been hard to get there, of course, you know, during the last couple of years with COVID. So that's been a disruption, but we've connected with them on Zoom calls and through phone calls kind of like we're connecting now and it has worked really seamlessly. But I was uh, at P&G from 1987. I went there right out of graduate school because I was excited that I could become a general manager. I had had a number of leadership experiences prior to that and just felt like if I could connect the dots between what happens in finance and marketing and marketing research and product development and operations, being able to take the talents 
and expertise of all of those parts of a company and bring it together into a higher performing team that's excited to serve customers. I thought that's what I wanted to learn how to do. And uh, hopefully that's been a hallmark of my career is being able to find great talent and pull together, you know, a team that really wants to serve customers and can bring them uh, a fantastic offering. That's, I think, certainly the hallmark of our transformation at Signet. And after that, I believe you went to a healthcare company, if I'm not mistaken? I did. I had had a lot of what I would call entrepreneurial experiences at P&G. It sounds funny to say that, you know, in such a large company, but I'd never worked on the biggest businesses. I didn't work on Tide or Pampers, you know, that kind of thing. I worked on the beauty business most of my career and really enjoyed working on businesses that you could grow that, you know, hadn't yet reached their full potential that I could work with a team to bring them along. And so I got in my head that I wanted to see if I could really be an entrepreneur. Like, could I run a startup company? Um, so I, well, I decided to leave P&G and then I was asked to become the president of a startup company in the pharmacogenomics space. You know, say, say that three times quickly. But I mean, this is a pretty new area of science and medicine where you can take a patient's DNA, which is data, and you can match that with data about how medicines work. And using that, doctors can cut through the trial and error and guesswork process of prescribing medications, and they could get to the right ones much faster. And so this particular company was focused in the mental health space. And so we helped doctors better determine the right medicines for people with depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, ADHD, uh, even pain medicines. And it was profoundly important work because the number one cause of suicide in both the U.S. and in Canada for adults and teenagers is untreated depression. And that includes people who are on a medicine, but they're on the wrong medicine. You know, their illness is not being treated. And so we looked at 17 million data points per patient for these doctors to create a report for them to show which medicines would be better for the patient. So it was really life-saving work and really exciting. And along with my team, we grew that business very substantially, well over tenfold. And then we sold it to the market leader who actually is Myriad Genetics. They had discovered the BRCA gene for treating breast cancer and determining the right medicines for that. And they just, they had the scale and capability to take the business and make it even bigger. So I, I felt good about that because it was good for employees and the longevity that they could have the other career opportunities. It was also a very good exit for our investors, which when you're running a venture funded company is always very important. Of course, it's very important for our investors at Signet as well, but I was really pleased. So I did that for about four years. Was that in Silicon Valley or was that in close to where you are now? Yeah, that's a great question. The company itself was actually located in Cincinnati, Ohio. We had patents. Um, we had licensed patents from the Mayo Clinic and also from Cincinnati Children's Research Hospital. It's one of the top three children's research hospitals in the country and gets a lot of NIH grants to be able to do breakthrough research like the area that we were focused on. And so we were located in that market because of them. But our largest investors were all out in Silicon Valley. So I made a lot of trips back and forth to San Francisco and Oakland um, over those four years. And so what, what in 2012 led you, I guess, to the board of Signet? 
I had been looking for the opportunity to serve on an outside board and we had a rule at P&G that you could only have one because, you know, they rightfully so didn't want us to be distracted from our day jobs. But I really wanted to serve on a retail board because I was making consumer products. And so I understood retail really well from that side of the equation, but I wanted to see it from the other side of the equation through the eyes of a retailer. And so when I I was approached with the opportunity to serve on the board of Signet. I got to know the company. I liked the management team. I thought I could learn a lot from the other board directors. And I also thought I could contribute something. I mean, the company was really moving more and more into branded products. Neil Lane was a brand that was very important at that time. Open Hearts by Jane Seymour. I mean, some of the signet brands that you'll remember over time. I feel like I had a great opportunity from the board to be an advisor once I joined on the launch of our Two Stone Ring you know, with the tagline of my best friend and my true love, which of course did very well for Signet. So it really came true. I think that it was a great learning experience for me as a director, but that my skill set could also be helpful to the company. When you were younger, did you have any, were you a big jewelry fan? Did you have memories of some of the big Signet brands that you now oversee like Kay and Zales? My mother loved jewelry. And so I would always play in her jewelry box. I thought it was so much fun. And she did not have pierced ears. She had clip-on earrings, so that made it really easy as a kid to get to try on all the different things that she had. I did not grow up in a family that was very well off. I mean, we were a middle-class family. We drove on family vacations, and, and it was exciting when we got to stay at the Holiday Inn because they, you know, had a pool, that kind of thing. So it wasn't as though she had a lot of jewelry, but she cared for it. You know, she thought it was very special and and she had stories for every piece of her jewelry. And that was always very meaningful to me. And so on my 18th birthday, my parents bought me my first really nice piece of jewelry, which was a diamond cocktail ring from Friedman's in Atlanta. It was just beautiful. It's something that I cherish to this day because, you know, it wasn't, wasn't easy for them to do things like that. And then when my mother passed a few years ago now, she left to my daughter her own diamond cocktail ring. So it's it is something that has been important in our family that's sweet oh that is that is when you join the board and then obviously as you got to be ceo i i mean we're always so curious to hear from people who've had whole other experiences in other categories and other fields i mean was jewelry as a retail category fundamentally different from the others you'd covered and, and worked in and how so I think um, first, the culture of the jewelry industry is unrivaled, in my opinion. I, I have worked in other categories and just the family feel of our industry, the connectedness between retailers and manufacturers or vendors, if you will, all the way through to the miners. I mean, it's just, it has a real connectedness and a family feel that I've never seen before. It's lovely because it fits really with how customers think about the products that we're all working so hard to provide to them, right? It's an emotional purchase. People buy jewelry for happy occasions to celebrate themselves or a great milestone or to celebrate people they love. And so it makes sense that it should be more of a family industry or business. So I think that's number one. I think maybe number two is that it's complicated. There's a lot of complexity in this industry. There's so many steps that happen all along the way that to me, 
me is intellectually challenging, but it also means that you need to have very strong partnerships, which we do and which I will continue to work to nurture with others in the industry so that we can work together. And maybe the third is that it's a very fragmented industry. I mean, it really has a lot of room for independent jewelers who still represent around 70% of category sales. And even Signet, you know, as the largest jeweler is only about a 7% market share. So it's not a category that has, you know, a few big dominant players, you know, who are sort of fighting it out for market share. It's a category where there's room for everyone to grow and develop and be able to help people sell celebrate life and express love. That's a really good point. It's such a unique business in that way, even even though it's inching towards a more monopolized, I guess, landscape. It's so slow going. It's still such a business with so many opportunities for so many family and smaller players. It's kind of a lovely thing, I think. And you're right, it does match the the category or the sense the sensibility of the category. Yes. And you know, it's of course it's true that the digital side of our category is growing and growing quite quickly, but customers still like an integrated shopping experience. And they really like to be able to touch and feel the products that they're buying. And so this is a category where brick and mortar will continue to be very important. So I think you could think of it, you know, more like a hybrid between the restaurant industry and any other retail industry where the experience that you have at the point of purchase in a brick and mortar environment is critically important to the entire customer experience. So what is your average day like? Is it different? I know it's, you don't ordinarily get to do exciting podcasts like this, but um, <laughs> uh, what is your uh, standard day like? How does that work for you? Well, certainly for all of us, the standard day has changed quite a bit in a COVID world that we've all been in and you know, not being able to be alongside our colleagues as much as we'd like to. But for me in general, my best days are when I'm out in stores. I just love seeing how our business happens at that first moment of truth. I mean, I love seeing customers come into our stores. I love how many of them greet our employees and vice versa by name. I love the fist pumps now, hugs previously that happened, you know, at that moment. I love being the fly on the wall to hear the story about, you know, remember when we got married, now here's our baby. And I mean, there's just a, it's a relationship industry. And I get so much energy from seeing our purpose of inspiring love come to life. And that's really one of the places where I can see it happen most. I also love being in our distribution center. Honestly, I used I used to love this when I was working in the cosmetics business at P&G too. I kept uh, eye goggles and steel-toed shoes in my desk drawer. And whenever the team would come ask me for a capital investment, you know, we need a new capper for the mascara machine. I would say, take me to the factory and show me. And it was right next door. And just that thrill of seeing, you know, the product being made in action. I mean, that's what our distribution center is like. We have shipments from vendors you know, in many different countries coming in every day, a strict QC process, you know, where we're logging all those products coming in, we're checking the quality of those. We're now doing shipping for e-commerce alongside the shipping that we're doing out to our stores. Um, So to the stores to increase their assortment to customers who've ordered something online, it's just a flurry of activity. And so I love being
being in those places in our business where I feel like I'm very close to our, our purpose coming to life. Is that distribution center in Akron or near there? Yes. Well, it's so interesting. We have two, what I would call centralized distribution centers, but we now have over 2000 distribution centers because over the last couple of years, especially accelerated during COVID, we've built the capability to ship product from over 2000 of our stores directly to consumers. And we can also ship to another store. So for example, if we have a beautiful ring sitting in Topeka, Kansas, and somebody in Miami wants that ring, we can ship to the store in Miami, we can ship to the customer directly in Miami. So what's happened since we put this capability in place is that our overall inventory turn has increased by 40%, which is, you know, unfathomable, of course, that you could increase that quickly in a couple of years. But through our transformation, that's how quickly we've increased that turn. There's obviously a cash and a working capital benefit to that. But the biggest benefit is to customers. On K, for example, this holiday, we have 50% more new inventory turning in every one of our stores than we did even two years ago. So capabilities like that have been fantastic for our customers in the sense of us being able to put innovation into the market much more quickly, but also from a cash flow standpoint. As you mentioned, sales have been way, way up, not just over last year, but over 2019, which was pre-pandemic. Do you see that continuing into the holiday? And I know there had been some concerns that post-COVID, which I'm not 100% sure we are really post-COVID, that people would turn back to experiential products and travel, but that seems to be less of an issue. Well, um, in terms of how we're seeing holiday, um, as you know, we did just raise our fiscal 22 guidance um, for the second time this year. This time we raised it by $240 million on our continued strong momentum. And that included an increase of both our third and our fourth quarter revenue estimates. I would say, Rob, I'm also particularly proud of our team and their focus on efficiency and driving our cost savings because the high end of our margin guidance that we raised to is now double the margin that we had two years ago. And that's really our transformation coming to life, which is wonderful. And thanks to the team for all of their hard work on that. I think what we're seeing for holiday is that there has not been as much of a shift to travel and entertainment as we expected. In our customer research, that's because the Delta variant has caused people to be more reticent about attending large events kind of like you were talking about no masks last week and it you know feels a little uncomfortable that's how customers are feeling thankfully one of the places they feel the safest going when they go out is to the mall but they feel less safe going to a concert or a movie or other experiences like that so we haven't seen the spending shift that we thought travel is still down versus pre-pandemic levels, particularly international travel, which would be those big expenditures people might make. So we're expecting that not to be the headwind we thought it might become for holiday. And then on the other side, we have some tailwinds, which are strong consumer confidence. It's been up and down a little bit the last couple of months, but it still is stronger than it was a year ago, which is good. And we also have the tailwind of engagements. We're expecting 
attracting engagements to continue the trend they've been on, which is up high single digits versus a pre-pandemic year. Those are very strong. So those are things that are helping to fuel our business. I think the other important thing is that our strategies are kicking in. We've worked hard to differentiate our banners. It used to be that Kay and Zales were competing against each other, even after Signet owned them. They were right on top of each other in their positioning and their product and their marketing. We've now teased those apart. And so they're appealing to different customers. And as a result, we're attracting more new customers who are differentiated and who we can serve the best with those banners. We have Jared growing strongly. We have Piercing Pagoda, which we are in the middle of a brand transformation on, still delivering the very strong growth that we've seen from them from the last several years. So I think the brand differentiation strategy has been working well for us. And obviously our connected commerce strategy, all the hard work that our team has put into becoming a more digitally enabled company is really paying off in our ability to serve customers now, whenever, wherever, and however they want to shop with us. You mentioned on the Mad Money show that men's jewelry self-purchasing in particular were some bright spots. Can you elaborate on any specifics in terms of how you might see those categories performing this holiday? We think that definitely men's jewelry is an area that will outperform previous years. Guys are feeling more and more comfortable wearing more than a watch and a wedding ring. And we've seen very strong trends, of course, in gold chains, but also in diamond jewelry and more wrist jewelry bracelets and things like that. So I think definitely an opportunity for continued growth there. That's an area where Signet has traditionally been underdeveloped. So for us, it's more of a white space opportunity opportunity and our Zales banners have really been going after that. So I think that's one that will continue. I have a friend who will get mad at me if I don't ask you this question. Lab-grown diamonds, how do you see them fitting into Signet overall as far as, you know, the big picture? Well, when we launched our Path to Brilliance transformation, uh, you know, a little over three years ago, we called out customer first as one of our key strategies. And that's how I think about lab-created diamonds. I think it's a choice for customers. It still represents a small portion of our overall sales. We tested it first in James Allen, which has been a really great test and learn kind of tip of the spear banner for us, you know, to see how they would do. And as a result of strong performance there, we've rolled them out across our other banners and, you know, we're seeing growth on those, but it's still not material to our overall business. I just think it gives customers a different choice. And there are some customers who love the idea that they can get very high quality stones at a lower price than they would pay for the equivalent natural stone. There's always been rumors that Signet's going to make a big push behind lab-grown or lab-created, I guess. Do you see that happening? We're being customer-led on this. So as customers gain more interest in lab-created, we will offer more lab-created within our portfolio. You just bought something. You just bought a big uh, company, uh, Diamonds Direct. We did. I'm really excited about that. Any thoughts on that? And how do you see that fitting in? And what do you plan to do with that? Well, it's a differentiated offering for us, Rob. I mean, that's where I'd start. We've developed these banner value propositions. And so we know who are the distinct customers for K, which is a different customer for Jared, et cetera. And Diamonds Direct has a differentiated customer as well. We did a lot of consumer research on it before we bought it to determine that it would be complementary to our existing portfolio. They do a great job in the bridal category. And that's a very important category to Signet 
it's about half of our company sales. We think it's an opportunity to meet customers and establish a relationship with them that could be a lifetime relationship so that we can celebrate their lifetime of milestones with them. Uh, so that's great. It's a business that's not very well developed in digital. And so there's an opportunity potentially to help them with that and accelerate their progress toward a connected commerce experience. But it is a company that has a fantastic point of purchase experience, a very broad offering, highly productive stores. I think there's a lot we can learn from that. And that's really the kind of culture that we've tried to create at Signet, one that is continually learning and growing by learning things from each other. We don't care where the great idea comes from. In fact, we're encouraging it to come from every part of our organization, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. And Diamonds Direct just gives us more opportunities to learn and grow in this great category. You'd mentioned uh, when you were at P&G that acquisitions were a big way that you expanded that business. It seems like you might be following a similar model here, but what are other ways you see to grow Signet's business? I think it's always important to look at business growth as a combination of organic and inorganic opportunities. And that's why we've laid out our strategy in two parts, our where to play strategies and our how to win strategies. So think of where to play more as the market view. We've said we want to win in big businesses. And we've said that we also want to expand the mid-market by pushing up the upper end into accessible luxury and pushing down the lower end into value. And we've said we wanna lead in services and lead in digital commerce. So those are our four where to place. If you think about the three acquisitions that we've made since I became the CEO, the first was James Allen. It was a decision I made in the first couple of days of being CEO, something that I had been very excited about as a board director and really wanting us to move more into the digital space. It was an area where Signet had gotten behind the retail category. And at the time I came in, we were losing share and not having the kind of banner differentiation or modern marketing that we needed. And so I wanted to have a B beacon of what it meant to be a digital company. And what better way to do that than to buy a pure play? And James Allen was and you know has been the fastest growing purely online bridal brand. And so it's been, I think, a great tip of the spear for us. The second one was to buy Roxbox, and that's a service. It's the rental and subscription service. And it's an area that Signet doesn't know that much about, but it certainly has done really well in apparel. If you think about Rent the Runway or other companies like like that stitch fix. So what a great opportunity for us to learn from someone who's already doing it and then expand those capabilities in our company. And then if you think about Diamonds Direct, it fits in the win in big businesses, which is bridal, and also in the pushing the boundaries of the mid-market to accessible luxury because it has a generally a higher price point than our other banners. So I've always thought about acquisitions as a way to live in the where to play. The biggest investments though that we've made at Signet were in our how to win area. Areas. So being consumer inspired, leading in connected commerce and in building our culture. And so most of our investments have been about organic growth, but complemented by these acquisitions to grow non-organically as well. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was a really interesting breakdown of how you see your growth and, and success. I had never really thought about breaking it down on those terms. You mentioned services, and I wonder what other services might you be looking at? Roxbox is one. Is there, I guess I, I think about services, and I don't exactly know what that means in the jewelry sense. 
Well, we're already quite big in services. The way that we think about it are that our financial programs that we offer to our customers are financial services. They can buy from us using a private label credit card, using leasing as an option, using split pay with a firm as an option, using their own bank credit card, using cash. You know, there are just all these different financial programs that we offer for them to be able to shop. We also think about service services, I guess, service programs like extended warranties. I think there are some more things that we could do in that space. Most of what we offer today applies to our bridal jewelry. But as I mentioned, that's only about half our sales. So having other offerings that could apply to other jewelry, I think would be a big opportunity or maybe in the area of theft and loss. And then we also offer piercing services. And for years, we've done mostly earlobe piercing, but now we're offering needle piercing as well, which gives customers the opportunity to express themselves even more fully. They're now designing their ears, you know, thinking about, well, if I get this one earlobe piercing and then I want two more, how is that going to look with a cartilage piercing or, you know, another kind of piercing? And we now have the capability to do that in more and more of our outlets. So I, I guess the other probably really big one that we offer is repair services. We have over 1,400 jewelry artisans on staff who perform, you know, everything from ring sizing and prong tightening to fully customized designs every day. We now have 3D printers and design experts in a number of our Jareds with our foundry experience. And so really taking repair all the way into custom is, I think, a very important one. You mentioned rental we think that can be go beyond fashion rental to other types of rental opportunities. Young people today, I have two of them in, in my life, two Gen Zs, my kids, and they're very interested in circular economy opportunities. Of course, we already do a great job of that in the jewelry business because we don't scrap our product. We melt it and we repurpose it and reuse it. But that's a story we're not telling as a category or an industry well enough yet. And I think if we can get some icons like Roxbox out there in more and different ways, that impression of our category can continue to grow and really, you know, help to create more interest from this next generation of customers. Yeah, I've been thinking about the circular economy quite a bit, and I keep wondering how the jewelry industry is going to tackle that. You mentioned, of course, we all know it's gold is a pretty circular item to start with and has been for millennia, but how can the jewelry industry reduce, reuse, recycle in the way that we're seeing other categories try to do better? We need to do it even more with the products that we offer to customers, but there are so many other opportunities, I think, to really step out in ESG. I mean, we all need to be looking at our carbon footprint of our businesses, of our office space, of our shipping, of our materials. I mean, these are things we've been working on at Signet. I'm very proud of our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, which are very much a part, you know, of ESG. And then, of course, the strong governance. We've you know, I think for a while been participating in that together in our industry. RJC providing governance over sourcing of products, you know, diamonds, metals, things like that. But those are all areas I think that as an industry, we need to continue to stay strong in and work on together. 
All right, we're just about to head into holiday, so we're about to wrap up. So any final thoughts as the uh, industry gets uh, ready to buckle down for the big event? Yes, uh, may it be a banner year for all of us uh, in the jewelry business, and, and may we delight customers um, in every aspect of how they want to express love to those who are important to them. I think we can all agree that this is a holiday where we could all use more love in the world. And so I hope that our category will be a beacon of that. And as we head into 22, any, you know, if you were going to single out a single topic or issue that you feel will dominate your headspace in terms of the jewelry business going forward in the new year, anything that comes to mind? I think within our company, our ability to leverage data and analytics to transform how we assort our stores, how we personalize our marketing messaging to customers, making sure that we're sending the right bridal messages to, you know, the 2% of people who will get engaged, but not the other 90% of people who aren't interested and making sure that we can meet our customers where they are and provide more convenience and access to them for products and services. So those kind of from an inside the company standpoint, I think are our most important priorities. And then I think as an industry, it's probably what I just said, Victoria, it's how we partner together to make the jewelry industry a beacon of ES and one that all customers can feel proud to purchase from because they're giving and wearing items that are imbued with meaning and they should feel fully thrilled to do that because they know our industry has stepped out and is leading on that front. Amen. Well, Signet surely is among the leaders and among the change makers and much of that clearly is thanks to you. So thank you for all your efforts and thank you for your time and your insights and may your season be just grand. Well, jolly. thank you. Yes, yes. May it be jolly. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you today and I have to give all credit for what we're doing to my team. They are terrific terrific, talented group of people. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jenna. Enjoy your weekend in Lake Oconee. All the best. And we hope our paths cross soon. Yes, me too. Thanks, Victoria. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.